Learning a few skills that help you to be a better communicator helps with connection. You know, we all the time talk about bad data in, bad data out. Well, the whole thing starts with like a good question. And and I think questions in particular, I have an affinity for those because it, it takes some of these giant psychological concepts and makes them much more actionable. You know, using the right question at the right time can pull all these different psychological levers and buttons that are going on in the person's brain. And using them that strategically can make a huge difference in the conversations that you have. So again, I don't know that financial planning as a process or anything like that needs to change. I think we're just going to get better at talking to each other about some of this and that that will have a big impact in and of itself. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Megan Lertz, Monterey, California. Welcome to Bridging the Gap. How you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining us. I'm super excited about this conversation. I mean, you've, you're versed in everything. Like you've done, you've got, you've got so much knowledge. You're just going to drop on everybody here. That's exciting. I don't know about everything, but a lot. You know, when you go to school for forever, and then you <laughs> kind of hang out with financial planners all the time, yeah, there is. There tends to be a lot that you learn. That is great. Well, we're, I mean, we're going to dive in. I'm really stoked to kind of dive into what you've learned with around behavioral psychology, how it's being utilized in wealth management today, where are their gaps, where can we get better, where's the future of it, resources, how people can get more in the know of what you spent so much time at school on. So without maybe having to go to school for as long as you did, maybe we'll talk about that. But but before we get in there, I always love to talk about the journey, right? And, and you know, you, you're a lecturer, you're a, uh, a writer for Kitsies. You're knowledgeable on behavioral psychology. So, you know, what did the 13-year-old Megan Lertz want to be? Was this like, you know what? I want to write for financial planners, and I'm going to talk about behavioral psychology. Uh, or what, what did the Megan Lertz at 13 want to be? The same thing that Megan at like uh, five wanted to be. I wanted to be a professor. I grew up totally in love with the idea of being Indiana Jones and... Not because he got to just, you know, go to all the cool places. I mean, that was cool. But I also just thought that it was cool that he just like knew everything. And so I, at a very young age, was like, professor, that that's the job that I want. And if that means I get to go to school forever. And I liked school as a kid, even. <laughs> so I just thought that that was sort of sounded like the dream job. And, and you, uh, you yeah. kind of got there. Yeah, I got there. Roundabout, roundabout way, you know, can't say that I became Indiana Jones, but I mean, I still study culture, you know, still kind of like track stuff down, you know, have my own sort of language of the way that, you know, we think about financial planning and how we feel about our money and stuff like that. So yeah, I mean, I'd be cool if people were like, yeah, Dr. Megan Lertz, Indiana Jones of financial planning and psychology. Like I would be okay with that official title. Well, so. let's give you the title now. Let's yeah, give it to yeah, you right I'm here on Bridging the Gap officially. The, the Indiana Jones of financial planning. Dr. Yeah. Megan Lertz. That's amazing. Did we just yeah, need to get you a hat? Well, I, yeah, that could be cool. That could be yeah. cool. I could get into a hat, you know, leather jacket. That could be pretty rad. That's perfect. We're in. I'm in. Yeah. Yeah, I love cool. it. So often, I don't, you know, you had this like vision of where you wanted to go and like you've got there. So many people have this vision of they don't know exactly where they want to be and then they kind of bob and weave through it. But you kind of had a path and you were on it. Tell us the journey from 13-year-old Megan Lertz to where you are now. Yeah. So... When I was younger, you know, so I, I knew I knew that college was, you know, had to go there if professor was the route that I wanted to go. And, and my undergraduate degrees are in philosophy, psychology and Spanish, because I originally thought, yeah, like thinking about thinking, thinking about how people think. I figure I could study that forever. But so after picking up three undergraduate degrees, my family was kind of like, but you should, you know, like get a job. And I'm like, what? My job, my job's going to school, man. I'm going to be a professor. And they're like, no, you have to get out. So I got out and uh, I went to work. Actually, my my mom was CIO of a company called Total Rebalance Expert. It's a rebalancing software it used to sit on top of Schwab Portfolio Center it was later sold to Orion. So Cheryl Rowling, my mother, same as Cheryl Lertz, they were friends in college and they started TRX together. And so I went to work for them and I had all this knowledge of just like how people think, you know, I was, I had studied psychology 
and philosophy. And I would be on the phone with these advisors and they would be talking to me about, you know, why they were rebalancing these portfolios. And like half the time, it was because something had happened, you know, like somebody needed to go to rehab or somebody, you know, messed up the car or we we're redoing the bathroom or, you know, like they rebalance for tax efficient reasons, but they also rebalance for a lot of not tax efficient reasons. And so they always thought that it was kind of funny that I knew about just weird, you know, family dynamics and stuff and all the different site classes that I took. So around this time, I was also working on my master's in industrial organizational psychology, because even though my, fa my family had said you can't go to school, they didn't say that you can't go to school ever. They just said you have to also have a job. So I had a job and I was going to school. So I'm at a trade event. I'm at like a TD Ameritrade conference, I think. And I'm there for Total Rebalance Expert and I'm standing around and these a bunch of these PhD students walk up to me and I'm like, yes, PhD students. <laughs> and they were wanting to use the software to run rebalancing stuff and like look at portfolios and cool, cool. And so I started talking to, I guess he was like their chaperone or you could think of it like that. His name is Dr. Barry Mulholland. He's now at Akron State. He was at uh, Texas Tech at the time. And he, we got to talking just about my job at Total Rebalance Expert and, you know, the funny things that people do with their money. And he was like, well, you know, if you if you like that stuff, you know, I one of my past students is at Kansas State University. You should give her a call. Her name is, uh, well, at the time, Dr. Sonia Britt, now Dr. Sonia Luter. And, uh, you know, she, she'd probably be happy to talk to you. So he sat me up like, you know, doesn't know me from Adam, was kind enough to set me up after talking for like 10 minutes on this call with, well, at the time it was with Sonia, but it was also with Dr. Christy Archuleta. And so like the two premier people within financial planning and financial psychology and all this deal. And we talked about stuff and they're like, yeah, yeah, it sounds like you would make a great master's student. So I'd already finished my master's in IO psych. I decided to sign up for a master's in financial psychology because, you know, why not? And <laughs> I, I took two classes in their master's program and I was like, yep, this is, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm going to switch over to the PhD program. So I applied to that and I started getting my, started working on my PhD. The PhD is officially in personal financial planning. So I have all the CFP knowledge, but I also, my interest was more so in the financial psychology space. And I, there's like no going back for me, you know, like I, I yeah, you're in. We love what I do and I love the people that I get to work with. And yeah, like, and it's just so interesting. People are bananas, you know, when it comes <laughs> to their money. And so it's like, there's just a never ending list of like stuff that you want to know, things that you want to figure out, relationships that you want to understand. You know, it's like people are already just individually nuts, you know, and then you start to add like their spouse and their family and their kids. And it's just like the craziness <laughs> multiplies, which for somebody like me is like, yes, stuff to study forever for other it's people. It's a constant puzzle. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Like it's a constant puzzle of psychology. And I, for so long, financial planning was all data and economical based, yeah. right? It was just like model based, put the numbers in and spit them out. And people did okay, but like yeah. they were missing this whole thing of us being human and the irrationality that we have as humans. From your standpoint, on the the concepts of psychology, right? Where are we in this game within wealth management of behavioral psychology really like we're talking about it a lot more. More people know about it, more people are studying it, but is it actually making its way into practice? And like where are we in that game? Are we in the the first inning, are we in like the eighth inning or are we kind of stalled in like the, the middle of the second? Yeah, I'm going to go with we're like in the second and we're experiencing a rain out, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> uh, so, so, okay. So I, I think it's useful to like talk about this in historical purposes. So in the seventies, you know, that was when behavioral economics research was being conducted, like Kahneman, Thaler, Jaworski, like all these people, that's what that's what they were doing at that time in the 70s and sort of early 80s. What's being done in academics right now in academia right now, obviously builds on that work like that's how so their questions were, well, if people aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing rationally, like moving from a neoclassical economic model of like what people should do, you know, they should, they should borrow, then they should save and then they should, you know, not save, they should start spending their money. 
but people don't do that necessarily. And so then, so the behavioral economists came along and they're like, okay, what do people actually do? And so that's what, that was what their research question was. What are people actually doing if they're not doing what they should be doing? So then, then behavioral economics in many ways could be compared to like cognitive psychology, where it's just a big list of all the ways that your human brain fails you or, or doesn't work. You know, you could argue that overconfidence bias is just as much of a nuisance as like depression, you know, and, and that's what cognitive psychology is too. It's just like all the emotional things that can kind of go wrong and like doctors are there to help you. Behavioral economics is all of our sort of biased thinking and heuristic style thinking that can happen and problems with that. So really, these are just like big lists of like goofy things people do. And, and that was really important research to do. We did not know that before. Mm -hmm. But now that we know that the research questions have been changing. And so instead of saying, what do people do? We might say like, why do they do that? Or even the research that I've been doing or that I am involved with a lot and Kansas State is involved with a lot is, okay, now that we know what they're doing, we even kind of have some ideas as to why they do that. Now, here's the intervention to like actually do something about it. Any advisor can tell you it's not helpful to tell your client, oh, this is just this is just overconfidence bias talking. Like, just don't do that. <laughs> like that, that doesn't work. But there's been research. It's called SPIES, if I could think of. If I was smart enough, I'd remember what the acronym SPIES stands for. I don't at this moment, but I've written about it. And SPIES, what it is, it's, it's a way to work with overconfidence bias. And so like that type of research that has very direct practical application, like that's what's going on in academia right now. And practice is usually 20 years behind what's going on in academia. So it's no surprise to me that Many financial planners, and I'm very happy about this, you know, have read Kahneman's book and like, you know, believe that behavioral economics is the way and like, yes, it is dope. I, if I could just hang out with Thaler and Kahneman every day, I would be like, what's up, Danny? You know, like, let's go. <laughs> but like, you know, I, I'm the Indiana Jones of financial planning. Hang out with me. So like, it would be cool to be best friends with them. What they have done has made what I do possible. But where academia has gone since then it is beginning now or, you know, there's there's inklings of this showing up more and more in financial planning. A lot of times through like different certificates and stuff like that, you know, people have recognized that knowing what's wrong is one step. You know, some of it can be nudged away and stuff like that, but much of it cannot. Much of it has to be worked through or working through it has its own benefits. Most of the research yeah, that I'm involved in relates to that, relates to this sort of more intervention style approach in the sense that advisors, you know, I had a I had an advisor, his name's Elliot at Buckingham, say to me that he calls financial planning a uh, performance sport. And I'm like, yes, that makes absolute sense to me uh, because therapy is kind of the same way. And that, you know, you can't necessarily like, okay, LeBron James could write down how to have his fadeaway jumper. And like, that would be great. And I could be like, yeah, I can read that. I can... I can do the fadeaway jumper, but like you can't. And so just reading about behavioral economics, you know, just reading about an intervention, this is not enough. Financial planning is a performance sport. You know, you have to practice some of this. And so many of the designations and accreditations and certifications that are available now that were not even available even 10 years ago are becoming more and more prevalent. And I think more and more financial advisors are finding that all the time. And, and we can certainly talk about that, all the different ones that I know about. Because, you know, behavioral economics and financial psychology and even the psychology of financial planning, which is yet a different thing. It's kind of like the, the dance or the, the importance of the relationship, you know, through which the advice is delivered. And if you have a relation SHIT instead of a SHIP, you know, like the information doesn't go through as well. Like you can have the best advice in the world, but no one's going to take it because they think you're a jerk. So you know, thinking about the power of the relationship itself as the conduit, you know, through which this advice is being delivered, that goes back to like this importance of intervention, you know, to understand basics. And I say basics in that all humans communicate all the time. Most humans are really crappy at it. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's a thing that psychologists and therapists, they go to school for a lot of years to be relatively great communicators. You know, the rest of us are just like, well, you know, bad communication all the time from pretty much every angle. I know that you know Brendan Fraser. Brendan Fraser and I joke a lot about this, that we, we've we asked people like, describe the best, you know, communicator and listener. 
And a lot of times people say like, oh, you know, they listen, they don't interrupt, you know, they shake their head and we're like, you're describing a dog. And they're like, <laughs> actually, yeah, you know, my dog is my best listener. This is not good, people. Like we want, we want other humans to be good listeners and, you know, good question askers. And you're not a bad person if you're a bad communicator, you're normal. Yeah. <laughs> and these, this is things that we can get better at. I have students every semester that, you know, write to me after like a couple semesters have gone on and they're like, oh yeah, Dr. Lertz, I, you know, I took your class and I try this thing now with my clients, but I figured out that if I try it with my wife, you know, or with my partner or with my, you know, teenager that like that goes better too. And I'm like, oh yeah, you know, <laughs> communication is universal, man. Like becoming good over here can make other things better over here. And uh, yeah, I guess all of that's to say that um, I know that the students that I have right now that are being taught financial planning by me and, and other people, like we have as a part of the financial planning curriculum, client psychology, the psychology of financial planning is, is baked in. And so more people are getting access, but there's a great many people that, you know, that got their CFP before, or perhaps haven't got their CFP yet that wouldn't have received that training and, and wouldn't have been able to have opportunities, whether it's classroom setting or certification type setting, to practice some of those interventions that, you know, to, to really step into the fact that financial planning is a, is a performance sport. Now you've got me super like self-conscious of how I am as a communicator and a listener. Like if I'm, if I'm nodding and smiling, is it just because I'm a dog or am I a good communicator? So now, you know, thank you for that. I really do appreciate that. Talking to, talking to you, knowing like this guy, dummy over here uh or normal actually i'll just be normal i'm just normal You'd just be normal um really good dog <laughs> valuable. don't give my wife more ammunition than she needs okay um but so you know i think that the point like the the rain delay in the second inning is a great framework for where we are and i you know the talking about like the frameworks and the practicing of the frameworks and like being getting good at those and like the interventions as you as you mentioned I'm curious from your standpoint, like the 20 years behind academia yeah. is practice. So we're still pretty far away, but like people are now, are, like you said, are aware of it and are talking about it. But does the industry or how we deliver, not necessarily what we do in our profession, right? Like what we do is helping people reach happiness or reach financial success and reach all their financial dreams or their just overall dreams. That probably stays the same, I would assume. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, but the how we do it, like, is this a drastic shift that the industry is going to have to face in order for this to become like from the second inning to like the fifth or sixth inning? Like how big of a, of a shift in terms of how we deliver our, our service is it going to be and like major? What is that, you know, from your perspective, does that look drastically different and how does that look? Uh, this is a really great question. And to me, it relates to like the, some people hear about the financial psychology stuff and they, they think about, oh, okay, this is a service mm -hmm. that I'm going to bolt on to the financial planning that I'm already doing. And I don't look at it like that. You know, I, I think that great financial planning has within it just being a good human you know, and being a good listener and understanding human skills. I, I totally steal this from Brian Portnoy and Neil Bage and Joy Leary at uh, Shaping Wealth. They talk about the sort of infiltration of, of psychology, you know, as a part of financial planning, the way that they talk about it in the sense of gravity, that, you know, that it's there all the time, that absolutely has an impact on us. You know, if you were to go to a no gravity room, you would notice and you would notice if you went to like gravity that was too much, you know, so like it's in there, it's all the time, it plays a role, but shifting it, you know, up and down has dramatic impacts. And it's not that it changes our walk to the grocery store, you know, we still have to do that, you still have to do just good old financial planning. But the impact that great communication can have is sort of understanding that, that communication is there all the time, like gravity is there all the time. And and if we can mess with those meters a little bit, you know, there can be amazing things that that happen. And so I don't necessarily think that it has to be like a bolted on service. I think my soapbox is often that we should quit teaching trigonometry and we should teach the trans theoretical model of change and, you know, probably some basic accounting skills that the world would probably be a really great place if we were nice to each other about change and we knew how to balance our checkbooks. 
So if anybody, like if you know any people that can get that done, I'm yeah, I got I'm, it. I got <laughs> I got a, a contact right up the street for sure. Yeah, <laughs> but I yeah. think I think that there's really something to that that it doesn't have to be. So I don't think it's going to change. To your question, it's not going to change how we do financial planning or the mechanics of financial planning. I do think that as we have, I've done research on this, you know, so we have financial planning software, you know, we have tax software, we have all these fun things that help us to do the number crunching part faster and oftentimes better. You know, you can't like hopefully accidentally do the math wrong if it's being done by a calculator. And that can sometimes give us more time for the personal stuff. You know, you can ask more questions or different questions. You can, uh, you know, I, there is no denying the power of a follow-up question, maybe even more so important than that initial question. Mm. And when we start thinking about things like that, and when we start teaching students about that, when we even within like corporate training programs, being able to, or you know, just learning a few skills that help you to be a better communicator helps with connection. Certainly, you know, we all the time talk about bad data, you know, bad data in, bad data out. Well, that whole that whole thing starts with like a good question. And so thinking about that, and, and I think questions in particular, I have an affinity for those because it, it takes some of these giant psychological concepts and makes them much more actionable. You know, mm. using the right question at the right time can pull all these different psychological levers and buttons that are going on in the person's brain. And using them that strategically can make a huge difference in the conversations that you have. So again, I don't know that financial planning as a process or anything like that needs to change. I think we're just going to get better at talking to each other about some of this and that that will have a big impact in and of itself. There's so many places I want to go with this conversation. And, you know, the first place I want to go is that what's so interesting about that, that point that you make is that we're at a time right now in our world and, and specifically in our industry where everybody's worried about AI and, and generative AI and the ability and the capabilities that it has and what does it mean to what we do. And, you know, what I'm hearing to you is like this optimism that we should all have as advisors that, you know, AI should be looked at as a tool to allow us to spend more time to get better at what our moat is to technology that I talk about. It's like our moat is the relationship, is the ability to ask good questions and build relationships and be personable, which technology is never there, is never going to be able to get to. And so in your mind, like where does AI fit in? I mean, I wasn't even planning on asking this, but I, I've opened the bot, the, the uh, Pandora's, Pandora's box. <laughs> what is the role of AI and how do you see it in your in your journey and, and where your focus is? Where does it fit, if at all? And what does it mean, if anything? Yeah, yeah. In your role? yeah. I, I think it's a cool question. And there's a few things that I want to point to. One Watson, you know, is early AI version used in medical, whatever, whatever, and has been extremely helpful in that. But when you are diagnosed with cancer, you still want to talk to a human. You very much like knowing that that human, you know, used actually I, my mother had breast cancer when she was 49 and I'm 39 this year. So I've had to go through like extra stuff. And uh, so I had to get like an MRI, had to get all this other things. And I was told by the doctor that AI scanned my scans of these like sort of three different dimensions, these three different tests I had to have. And the AI can find things, you know, that like maybe the doctor was like, oh, you know, look at that. But like the AI can find it and then the doctor knows what it is. And then the doctor is there to talk to me. So AI has been being used as a calculator, as a connector, as an understander of information. And the more information you feed it, you know, the more it has to go on. And that is a really beautiful thing, you know, because, well, I can tell you as a researcher, it's really nice when like AI is like, hey, you read this. Do you also want to read these five other things? Because people also think that's cool. And I'm like, yes, I do. <laughs> um, so that's, that's really nice. And I think that there'll be lots of opportunity to do things like that with all of financial 
data. The other thing with financial data is it's pretty protected. I mean, not that medical data is not, but there's been a lot of people tend to trust doctors. Sadly, they don't tend to trust financial people. So like what will be able to be mined and how it will be able to be mined and how we will understand it and who writes those algorithms is a really important thing to understand about, you know, anytime, you know, as a researcher, you're trained to think, okay, this is what this is telling me, but what data is missing? Mm -hmm. What am I not seeing? What am I not thinking about? What is not even here that I should be asking about? And so when advisors can to can take this information that's given to them and then still be able to say, but what's missing in this information? What data do I not yet have that would be very helpful for this particular issue? So with being able to use AI and being able to use research and data is is also important to understand like how a researcher then thinks. And those are skills that anybody can learn. It's not like a only superpower people or something like that. But that, so that will have to happen. Another thing, you know, they've used AI in quite a few different therapy settings. Like there was some relatively recent research. I think it was done in Michigan. They have like a eating disorder clinic and they were trying to train like a bot that, you know, the person could have a conversation with. And two or three different times, similar to like the stories that we read in the New York Times about how chat GPT was like in love with people. So the the bot like went off the rails, you know, it was talking to people with an eating disorder and yet giving them like caloric counts and things like this, which a human would understand not to do. And again, the bot was trying to be helpful, but it it just it does it doesn't have enough information to do it right. Mm. And I also, you know, there's going like even further back, you know, just like what we are built on as humans. So, you know, our natural response is to stuff that freaks us out fight, flight, freeze. These are how we respond. But there is another F word that I love to remind people of. And that word is flock. It is also a natural response. It's like why we have oxytocin released when we hug people. It's why we've had a rough day and we call our mom or our partner. And even though they probably can't fix what's wrong, God, it just feels really good to spread out that stress. You, we don't spread out the stress when we type stuff into Google. Usually Google just gives us like 10,000 more things to worry about. And so, again, it, I do believe that there is a world where humans will exist alongside AI and like it will be very helpful for us. But I think we are really far away from when and how that happens. And so how financial planners, I think, should be thinking about AI right now is in terms of like really fancy calculators, but really fancy calculators that you still need to ask yourself, where is this data coming from? You know, how, like how have you come up with this strategy and, and what wasn't there or what still needs to be there? And this doesn't change then your relationship with your client. In fact, it makes, again, like if the relationship is the conduit, you know, through which this advice and these numbers and things like that are being uh, administered and, and detailed and discussed, you use like not nothing. No AI is going to fix that. You know, like you're still going to have to know basic human skills and and be able to be there for someone. And I just I can't even imagine like what I know we've what was that movie way back in the day with like was it Joaquin Phoenix and the major the, the the robot yeah yeah and that was scarjo's yeah you're asking the wrong guy i'm not i'm not a movie buff but yeah i know where you're going with that that you know so but like (laughs) we could ask ChatGPT that if we wanted to that even went off the rails and so i i just think you know be aware of it just like we're aware of other things you know try to figure out how it works think about it as it relates to portfolios and stuff like that and and different calculations that could be done or using it as just like a prompt. So like if you're trying to think of a really long email that you're trying to write about, I don't know, tax loss harvesting, and you're like, how the heck do I even want to start to explain this to the client? Just tell chat GPT to come up with something with you really quick. You know, get the blank page effect off the table. Using it like that to make your job easier to do intense calculations, I think all of that is is great. Yeah. But we're nowhere near replacing the importance of humans to be with other humans in good times and bad. There's last point of research I'll point to is that in this book, it's called The Good Life. It's from the Harvard researchers and their longitudinal study. And they have looked at people who get like, you know, cuts and stuff like that. 
and the people that report having a greater number of positive relationships in their life, they heal faster than those that do not. And, and what that tells me is that it's not, it's not chat GPT. You know, it's having somebody that in your life that you love and that loves you and having more of those people. So having your financial planner, you know, having your spouse, having healthy relationships with the other family members, that this is really what creates the good life. This is really what creates longevity. This is really what creates health. And if we focus on that connection, which only we can uniquely deliver, then chat GPT is not. not financial planner shouldn't be. I, I, I was talking to Daniel Crosby, who I, I know you know, and we were talking and I was like, you know, I'm a big golfer and golf has had advancements in technology. There's this, now this thing that's like, you know, two and a half by two and a half feet that you can put on the driving range and you can put it behind your swing and it basically like digests everything. It basically gives you advice on like how to better your swing. And it's like, you can see it on your phone. It's right there. And yet the golfers today, relative to, you know, decades past, more of them have coaches than ever before. And so you ask yourself, like, why is that? The technology is advanced so much more drastically to where like, you know exactly what club and angle and all this type of stuff that you need to swing and use and all that. Why is it? Because the stakes are higher than ever before. And and you need someone to interpret that for you and relate it to you specifically uh, right. and get you out of your own way. And when I think about financial planning and retirement, there's nothing that has stakes that are higher than that. You only get yeah. one shot at retirement. And that is the highest stakes game that you can play. And that's why, and I love that that concept of flock that you say, right? Because like that's why it's never going away. When the stakes get so high, people are going to turn to what they know best and they know humans best and they need the support of humans. One thing that you were alluding to prior was this idea of uh, good questions. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious from your standpoint, like how do research, because, because you're talking about like an AI, you know, you have to ask the questions like what's missing? Like where is the data? Like, and, and that's being very thoughtful in your questions. And I'm curious from like a researcher standpoint, like yourself, what makes a good question? And, and is it always the first question? And I, you said this before, or is it is the best questions like the third and fourth question, the, the person that's not afraid of continuing to ask more questions to get deeper underneath that onion? Yeah. I, I think that this has, yeah, certainly relationship to, to research, but it also has relationship to just our relationships. And so for sure, so as a researcher, I can tell you that there is no perfect data set. All data sets have problems. Therefore, <laughs> all answers are going to have some level of error in them. And there's just no, I mean, as a researcher, you actually measure the error, like in your, in your equation and things like that. But I don't expect everybody to know that, but just generally it's important to know there's no perfect data set. So there is zero way that you're getting a perfectly correct answer. Zero. <laughs> economists try really hard. I like this joke about economists. So no offense to any economists, but <laughs> so there's like a, there's this balloon, you know, and a guy's in a balloon and it's floating over a field and he yells down to this other guy that's on the street and he's like, hey, where am I? And the guy yells from the street, you're in a field. And the guy from the balloon goes, are you an economist? And the guy goes, yeah, how'd you know? And he's like, well, you're perfectly correct. And yet your answer is totally useless, you know, because it's like, <laughs> you know, like, yes, you have attained the specificity, but by holding everything else constant, which is how research works, that's fine. But that's not how the world exists, you know? And so it's super fun to find out, like, I love the people that do um, all the big, like, economic books. Like, it's great. It's so fun to hear all that stuff. But it, it, it has its limits in what, you know, it can really tell you about real life. And so as a researcher, there's no perfect data set. You're never going to get a perfect answer. In life, uh, you know, I, I talk with Brendan about this a lot, and I've actually read this in a book. This is not my idea. It's uh, actually a researcher wrote this, and th this particular researcher does a lot of qualitative research. And so they draw questions, or they relate to questions in this way, that they draw an iceberg. And there's like the first question you ask, the, the person will respond to you with like a fact, you know, so like financial planning, you may be like, so, you know, tell me about your, tell me about your investments. And they'll be like, well, I have four 401ks. And, and you may think like, okay, cool, you know, 4401ks, and you write that down. But nobody ever says something for no reason. You know, so what was, this? and that's how the iceberg works. You know, there's the fact, 
But then there's also like, what's the situation? What's the meaning behind? Like, are you telling me you have four four one ks because I'm supposed to be impressed? Are you telling me you have four four one ks because you can't hold down a job? Are you telling me you have four four one ks because you know you're confused and you just telling me like what what is the meaning behind telling me that you have four four one ks when I ask you tell me about your financial landscape? Then there's also even deeper than that how they feel about it. Like again, like are they confused? Are they happy? Are they like I'm rich? You know, like I don't know. We don't know. And so just asking about the fact and stopping at the fact doesn't tell you anything about like what they mean and how they feel about it. And as a financial planner, you you really need that information as well. Like, yes, we need to know from like a profit and loss statement or their net worth statement, like what they have. But we in terms of like their goals and where they're going next and, and this difference between cognitive psychology or behavioral economics and like the weird things that they've done and moving towards a place of like positive psychology that like, you know, even in spite of this, the stuff that can go wrong and the things that we think and how that can be confusing. But like, what do we want to do? You know, like, what's the life that we want to build? You know, what's possible now? And how do how do we get more good? You know, like loss aversion is from behavioral economics. And the way that loss aversion works is related to magnitude. So, you know, if you you find $100, you're like, sweet, $100, you know, and you're like happy about it for a couple of hours. If you manage to lose $100, you're pissed for like a week, you know, like <laughs> it's just $100, you know, but your your level of happiness does not match your level of anger. And so if you think about, you know, again, focusing on all this negative stuff, like all the things that can go wrong and the markets are crazy and, you know, our brains aren't, are not adjusted for this. And you can focus on that and it weighs a lot. But in knowing that there is a balance, you know, thinking of this as like a scale, positive psychology is kind of like, well, can we just stack the deck, you know, on the other side? Can we can we help to balance this out a little bit? And we even do things like this in our lives. You know, we talk about fight, flight, freeze and flock. You know, if I call my mom and I'm having a bad day and I'm spreading out my stress, you know, she usually says something to me like, well, count your blessings. You know, what are what are 10 things in your life that have gone well today? And you know, you may like grind your teeth if you're me and be like, I don't want to talk about that. You know, talk about mad. But when you do that, when you when you per- when you purposefully reset the scale, it has an impact on how you see your life. And I think that financial planners, you know, have this power because the client's coming in and, and the client is freaked out. Something's wrong. Nobody wakes up on a Wednesday and says, "Woo, let's go talk to a stranger about my money." They don't say that. So if if they've decided that it's so painful that talking to a stranger in an industry that nobody trusts seems like a better idea than dealing with it alone, okay, you know, like that's where we're at on day one. And the financial advisor's job is to deal with the heaviness of that and then also, you know, find the lightness, you know, that's possible, like to to know that like one day we will be out of this valley and we will be on the plateau and we can choose something else mm. and to balance that scale, this is a a human ability and a human ability that we can encourage other people to do. And we can take part in, you know, in in terms of just thinking about the psychology and the relationship and the dynamic that you play in that, you know, as the financial advisor, I I think that that is, you know, immensely powerful, but it's, it's taking the time to decide what's here, what's not here, what skills and abilities and, and sort of understanding of financial psychology is is at my fingertips in terms of like, what can I do and executing? It's so interesting. I'm going to I've got one more question, and then we're going to wrap it up so you can get back to your, your your day job and impacting and learning and helping all of us be better. But as you're talking about this, there's a lot that as I'm listening to it, I'm hearing this idea that we have to start talking about feelings. Mm, like, how yeah. do you feel about this? Like, you said four four hundred one ks, but like, why? Like, do you feel yeah. that that's right? Like, and then and then like getting deeper about like, well, you know, this is a big decision. Like, why are you so upset? Tell me more about that. Like, dig into that. And we're analytical in nature, financial advisors. Like, we talk about data points. Yeah, hey, look at this chart. Beautiful. Look at it. it goes up bottom left to the top right it's great how am i am i wrong on that assumption one and then two how can we transition our mindsets 
to be more comfortable. Why do we have such difficulty talking about feelings? Let's just put it there. Why are we so challenged as humans to talk about feelings? Even in, not even in this profession, just in real life. Why can't we talk about feelings? That's a, that's probably a bigger fill. You'll have to invite me back to talk for an hour. <laughs> Why can't we talk about our feelings? Uh, I would say that part of it is we just don't get enough training in doing it. You know, again, we're taught trig. We're not taught trans theoretical model of change. And so uh, a lot of people say like, fine, good, you know, okay, mad, you know, like they don't only four and three letter words as it relates to their feelings. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't really help because like, what does mad mean? You know, like mad because like rage, you know, mad, like there, it can just be so many more things. So one, just trying to increase the vocabulary and you can ask even follow, like you said, mad, like scale of one to 10, where 10 is like, you know, rage and one is like, ugh, annoyed, you know, like you said mad, which one are you talking about? Mm. You know, and getting some, just some feedback on, you know, you're saying fine, describe for me what's going on, you know, like, so I tell my students that it's kind of like grade school basketball rules. Uh, I went to school at Kansas University, so basketball is kind of like in my blood and ki kids basketball, you know, you tell them, look, everybody... We have to commit, pass the ball three times before anybody shoots. And so I think that this is a good rule for like, you have to ask three questions, you know, preferably first question and then two follow-ups before you're allowed to like give any sort of advice to think any things, just, just follow that rule. And, and if it's what we were talking about earlier, where it's kind of like fact, meaning feelings, you could say, okay, so tell me about your financial landscape. First question. And they say, oh yeah, I got a uh, 441ks. You're like, Cool. What does that mean to you? You know, like, well, like what, what brought that up? Like what made that the first thing you said? And they would probably be like, well, you know, it's just like, it's just a lot. You know, I feel like I have like stuff everywhere. Okay. Well, would it be fair to say then that like, maybe you're feeling a little disorganized or that stuff's just kind of like, it'd be helpful to have more organization was, is that sort of what you're feeling? And they'll say like, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Like more organization would be good. So now we've connected the fact to the meaning and the feeling, and it becomes almost like a, it's just a process. It's just a follow-up process. Whatever they say, mm. ask something about what that means to them and then ask them how they feel about it. And this can be a really useful process. It's not particularly difficult to do. Another thing that works pretty well is mirroring. This one sounds kind of weird, but, you know, so a person is kind of like, you know, I've got 441Ks and you're like, okay, 441Ks. And they're like, yeah, uh, cause nobody likes silence. They'll try to fill it and they'll, yeah. So I, you know, I had like a few different jobs and you know, and this happened and that happened. And I, you know, I'm just like curious about rolling them over and like, you know, how, maybe should I condense them down to one? And they're like, condense them down to one, <laughs> you know, and they'll just keep going. They won't notice that you're necessarily doing that. It works pretty good. Uh, especially in newer relationships, this one's harder to do with a spouse. Cause they'll be like, why are you repeating me? Especially if you have uh, little kids. But this is something that this is what we do actually to little kids all the time when they're learning how to talk as we repeat back to them what they've heard. And this feels really good. It feels good to have somebody near what it is that you're telling them. So those are two just sort of feedback questions. And there's a funny research study that I always bring up about about um, follow up questions and just the importance of them. So I forget if it was like Stanford or Harvard, but it was like a fancy school, right? And you have these like nerd in my mind. I just imagine these like nerd social psychologists. And what do they want to know? Who gets a second date? So they <laughs> go and they study speed daters and they look at all this stuff. They have like these huge regressions in this, in this uh, paper. And the thing that was statistically significant is who asked the best follow-up questions. And so the best follow-up questions, they have to be about the other person. So just hearing the difference here, like, your client or somebody comes in and they're like, yeah, I'm going to go to Italy. And you're like, oh my gosh, Italy, that sounds so great. Have you ever been to Rome? And they're like, no, I've never been to Rome. And you're like, well, let me tell you, Rome is really great. You know, I went there and these six restaurants, like you're a nice person. If you do that again, that, that had no negative statistical significance in the sense that it didn't not cause a second date, but here's what did cause a second date. The person comes in, they say, oh my gosh, I'm going to Italy. And you're like, oh my God, Italy, where are you going to go? And they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go to Rome. I'm like crazy excited. And you're like, wow, Rome, what are you going to do? You know, and they're like, actually, I bought a book on all these restaurants, like letting them tell you, asking them questions about them, not, not asking a question so you can talk about you, which is what we like to do. Because the thing is in the brain, talking about yourself 
it's really relaxing. Like it, it shoots off pleasure center in the brain to talk about yourself. And so if you get somebody else talking about themselves, well, you're probably going to get a second date, you know, like you're because they're going to be happy. They're going to think you're really nice. They're going to feel good. And so this small thing, again, we know like big stuff is going on in psychology, but this is a really doable, really actionable thing that we can bring into our financial planning relationships. And it's all about, it's all about thinking about what am I trying to do from this meeting to that meeting or what am I trying to do even within this single meeting? And what types of questions, you know, are out there? What strategies can we employ in just the way we ask the question, the type of question that we ask, the follow-up questions that we use afterwards? This can make huge differences in the impact that it has, you know, on on, on what you're trying to do, but also the relationship that you have. I mean, I'm going to try the, I think it was the fact, feel, and uh, what was it? Fact? Fact, like meaning, like what it meaning. means. And then feelings. I'm yeah. going to try that with my wife tonight. See if that how that works. I think because the yeah. mirroring, you're right, doesn't work after you know eight nine years of marriage because she's like, stop, just answer my question. What right. do you mean? Um, but uh, I think it's just super interesting, and it's time and time again. But it's just a matter of you got to get over yourself. I kind of I always say that you just got to get over yourself. Stop talking about you. Talk about the other mm-hmm. person. Just be interested, like genuinely, authentically yeah. interested in someone else and what they had to say. And you know what? You're probably going to be a okay communicator and you're going to create good relationships like it's not that hard just get over yourself and that's but that's hard i guess i guess it's easy it's simple to understand but it's hard to actually implement I well it feels better in the brain to talk about you right. you know like so it's you're unfortunately you're like default mode is to do to talk about yourself when when really what you want to be doing is get them to talk about them so it's it's hard to ignore that it's hard to like overcome that but being aware of it you know, preparing for it, you know, maybe having a few questions written down, right? You know, FMF at the top of your paper or something that way you're like, okay, fact, meaning, feeling like I got to ask that, you know, three times. Great. You know, like if that's, if, if that process, you know, thinking of that structure works well for you, like, great, you know, like don't overthink it. Just, just do it. I yeah, love that. And if you want to talk about yourself, just start a podcast um, or a radio yeah. show. And you just, you know, that you can just without guests though, and just talk about yourself. And you'll see who comes to it. I mean, it may work. It may, it may be super interesting. Megan, this has been amazingly fun. Like, wow, this was incredible. So thank you for that. But before, I can't let you go. I've got to ask my two questions. I ask all my guests. And the first question is, is I'm a constant learner. I'm a curious person. I love to learn. And I love to learn from people that are much smarter than me, just like yourself. I mean, gosh, it is like me way down here and like up there. So I always like to read books. That's how I like to learn. So I'm curious, what's one of those books that you think everybody should read if they haven't or reread if they already have? I love, here, it's this book. Uh, I love this book. It's called Changing to Thrive. It's the newer, like, so their original book on just the trans-theoretical model of change was great. But this book has a lot of cool, actionable stuff in it. And it's just like understanding what you need and, and what you need for support and what the type of support you can give others in their endeavor to change. I just finished for the second time, The Good Life, which is the new book by the Harvard researchers on their longitudinal study. And it's just amazing, you know, like you were talking about Crosby earlier, you know, he put out Gallup, just he had a tweet the other day about how Gallup was like, the goals people set in 2023 was like health, career, and I don't know, something else like that. And then his like juxtaposition to the things that people regret. And it's like, you know, I spent too much time at work. I should have been healthier and I should have spent more time with my family. And it's like, you know, as a financial planner, yeah, you, you are literally running into that juxtaposition every single day. And so that, that book, The Good Life, it would be a great one to read for yourself, but actually to give it out to clients and then say like, okay, what did you, what did you take away from that? Like what fact did you pull? What is your feeling? You know, what's it, why did that one come up for you? And then, you know, like, how do you feel about that? You know, like there's cool, cool stuff that we can start to get to. And the more that we understand, you know, about what really makes us happy and that a lot of that is based in our relationships, more more ways to make that possible. I mean, I, I think if you're a financial planner and you're not asking, especially clients that you've had for a long time about their relationships, you know, again, probably in the context of financial planning, but like, look, you're good. Everything's good. That This is the review meeting and you are on track. So tell me in the next six months, 
if you could do anything, because you kind of can, like, what do you want to do to like improve your health? What what, do you, what might you do to like improve your favorite relationship? What might you do to improve one that's like needs a little help? You know, like these are really different types of questions to ask, but a thousand percent, you know, on the table and asking questions like that, you know, encouraging people to move from this place of cognitive and behavioral psychology where it's just about all the crap that goes wrong and taking more of a positive psychology spin on things and saying, look, we can go from good to great. We can go from okay to freaking awesome, but we, we have to put our energy there. So I'm going to ask you questions that we've probably never talked about before, but it's going to help get us going in that direction. You know, I think that that's pretty badass. I love that. I love that idea of let's set a goal, not a savings goal. Let's say, hey, you got this one relationship that's really in the tank and you want to make it better. What are you going to do? Like, what's that one thing that you can control that's going to make you better? And that's uh, part of it. I love that. We talked about a ton here. And uh, I always like to leave the audience with, you know, there's so much actionable insights from this conversation, but I always like to leave them with like one thing that they can start doing tomorrow to better themselves, better their business, better whatever it may be. What's that one piece of actionable advice that you hope the listeners take away from this just incredible conversation? Ask better follow-up questions. That it's a game changer. It's a game changer. It just, and it it matters to every part of your life. If you're a financial planner and you're listening and you're like, I don't really know how I feel about this, like fact, meaning feelings thing. Like you just said, try it with your spouse, try it with your friend that calls you next week, try it with a coworker in the office. Like everybody around you is likely human and it works on all of them. And so if if you're a little bit hesitant to go and ask your client that because you're just you know not quite sure what's going to happen and you want to practice like how you're going to get out asking about the meaning and asking about the feeling without being weird about it practice on other people everybody likes how that feels yeah. and so th- that's the fun thing about what i do is that you know i can encourage people to practice it on total strangers in fact <laughs> brendan brendan did something like this the other day when he was like out shopping and apparently the guy was like hey man you want to get some lunch after this like <laughs> I just find that hilarious. I find that hilarious, but so true. So true. So yeah, just, just try asking more follow-up questions. Tell yourself that no matter what they say, you're going to ask two or three questions afterwards to learn more about that thing, whether it's the meaning, whether it's additional facts or whether it's the feelings, you know, behind what they've said. I, I think that that's an incredibly powerful practice. I love that. I love that. Oh, Megan, I'm going to continue to follow you. This is our first time we've ever been able to connect. And gosh, I wish we've connected earlier in life. And uh, hopefully we can continue to connect more in the future. For everybody that's listening, if they want to continue to follow you, learn from you, engage with you, what's the best way for them to stay in touch and, and get in touch with you? Yeah, I, I'm most easily found through the Kitsis platform. That's where I do most of my writing. But I will say I, I also do a lot with shaping wealth. I also do a lot with the Financial Transitionists, the Financial Therapy Association, the Financial Psychology Institute, Money Quotient. And you know these are all different entry points into this, you know, the blind men and the elephant. Like, you know, there's a lot of different ways to experience some of this financial psychology stuff. And like, just find the one that works for you. Like find a couple of them, you know, like there's no reason to start in one and you you can end up on the other. I mean, I've done about every training you can possibly do in this space. And like, it's all awesome. It's all awesome. I love it. Megan, you're amazing. You're incredible doing awesome work for this industry. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking so much time and sharing your knowledge here with us on Bridging the Gap. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 